Welcome to the Four Jack Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to season four of the Four Jack Podcast, Canada's number one award-winning golf podcast and the fastest-growing golf podcast in America. Available on SiriusXM, Pandora, Apple Music, Spotify, Pick Cherries, and all your favorite streaming platforms. The Four Jack Podcast is powered by none other than TaylorMade Golf. Their engineers have been hard at work making the next generation of equipment, and their new lineup for 2022 is absolute fire. Head over to TaylorMade Golf and check out the all-new Carbon Face Stealth, Stealth Plus, and experience better energy transfer for yourself. TaylorMade has also been very generous with the 4Jack this year. We have a milestones contest going on right now. Head over to our 4Jack Instagram page for all those contest details. We would also like to thank multiple 4Jack Premier partners. Without their support, this show would not be possible. Therabody Cricket Shirts, Peretti Golf, Galvin Green, and to wash that all down, our favorite ready-to-drink on-course beverage, Birdie Juice. Season 4 continues to impress with a laundry list of amazing guests boasting some serious industry horsepower. But before we get into it with tonight's guest, let's head around the country and check in with the Forjack family on the road. Elaine, what's happening in SoCal today? Good day, good day, good day. Um, warm, we've got some warmth here, so that's always nice in the Southern California weather talk. Just you and I as a two-ball tonight. Uh, David Brisson's somewhere in a car, hopefully trying to call in. We don't know if we'll get the heavy panting a little later, but... Uh, that being said, it is uh, a good one tonight is a lot of insight on my end on this side of it. You guys know I'm, I'm turning the milestone of 50 soon, so I'm going to spend a week at Bandon playing one of the originals of our guest. And then, of course, I'm one of the recipients of uh, his and Nick's talents because I am representing a golf course that he designed and created. So I'm anxious for tonight, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I will I will try to get into a little bit of other things, I won't make it all rolling hills, I promise. But uh, at some point, you might have to wink or you might have to give me the cut <laughs> sign because I'm sure I'll go on and on about it. There you go. Well, without further ado, the Four Jack podcast is extremely excited to welcome a man that truly has golf and golf course woven into every fabric of who he is. Descending from a true grassroots style education, being a native to the home of golf, Scotland, this man is seen behind the curtain of what it takes to not only build, sustain and protect a piece of property for generations to enjoy for the years to come. A massive part of what made the iconic Bandon Dunes so very special, among many other properties. If you're ready to geek out on all things architecture and design, this is definitely your show. David McClay Kid, welcome to the Four Jack Podcast. Thanks guys. Pleasure to be here. Uh, hopefully your audience can understand my Scottish accent. <laughs> Absolutely. We got you. We got you covered. That's great. David, what's going on tonight? You hanging out down in Oregon? I, uh, I am. Uh, I'm at home here in Bend, Oregon, in central Oregon. Uh, I have two reasons for being here this week. Uh, one is uh, the heavy travel I've done over the last three or four weeks. So this week is a, a rare respite at home. I get to talk to you guys tonight and I get to go see Kenny Chesney tomorrow at the amphitheater here in bend uh and i'm a giant no shoes radio fan so one of my buddies who i won't name who's a ex nfl player texted me and said hey are you going to kenny's concert and i said yeah i got tickets weeks ago he goes yeah i'm texting him now and i'm like what <laughs> like yeah yeah i'm going with you dude so i've got both fingers and toes crossed that maybe i'll get to meet the guy who knows um, i'll, I'll be out is someone who has seen a show at that amphitheater. It's a hell of a place to see a concert. I mean, someone like that turning up and there's only 5,000 in there and a, a warm summer evening. It's uh, it's incredible. The guys we get to play here, you know, we've got Kenny Chesney and uh, yeah, all sorts, all sorts of high ranking guys come play here for some inexplicable, inexplicable reason. Uh, maybe it's to play my golf course here, Tethero. <laughs> I was going to say, I think Tethero and maybe Crosswater and maybe Pronghorn yeah. and some of the weather parts of the world, plus the sisters. There's some amazing things to do in that part. There really is. I mean, of all the places I've traveled in the world, the reason I live here is because it was the most beautiful spot I ever found. Uh, if, it, if it weren't for the traffic, Southern California would be high on my list. But having lived in London for a decade, I'm over it. I need to live somewhere where I don't take an hour to drive 10 miles. 
No one wants to be a part of that 405 at any capacity. D-Lane has the uh, has the dodgy back roads nailed down, but yeah, that's uh, I had that experience too. And man, that's a nightmare. There's nothing worse than sitting in traffic. Well, and David flies his own plane, so one of the things that you know when we were at Rolling Hills is that he flies right into Zamperini Field, and he's just side streets. I live in the South Bay because I don't touch the interstate system. I can get where I want when I want, unless I choose to get on them. So we're kind of insulated in this part of the world. But one of the great things about when, when I first got to the club was is David would just literally fly in, land, and he'd be there in like 10 minutes and he didn't have anything to worry about. I could literally on final going into Zamperini Field, which is Torrens Airport, I could look out the left side of the plane and like, why in the hell are those bunkers not shaped yet? They, were, they should have been done already. And I'd land on the field and call Nick up, who's my partner. And I'm like, Nick, what the hell? I, he's like, that damn plane, he can see everything from the sky on the way in. <laughs> and I, I could even circle the golf course if ATC would let me and I could like check the whole thing out. So uh, I could be looking at the golf course before I ever actually got to the site. That's secret. A, a rare treat. Secret to your success. The DMK Sky Police uh, routing on, on, on par there. That's right. Yeah. So, guys, where do we want to start tonight? D-Lane, I'm looking to you for a little insight. Do we want to time travel? Do we want to take it back to his youth? Do we want to dive into some golf courses right out of the gate? What well, normally we kind of get into current events, but I think with David's story, I think you have to understand the part of Scotland he grew up in and the fact that his father was a superintendent. I think, David, tell us a little bit about how it all started because I think it's paramount into what it is you do, and there's obviously different iterations between designs and how your golf course has evolved over time, but... I don't think any of it really ties together unless they know the true story from the beginning. Well, as, as you guys said, I'm the son of a Scottish greenkeeper. Uh, and my father got into a golf as a teenager in Scotland, which is hard not to do because golf in Scotland, in fact, go, golf in the UK is a, a populist sport. Everyone plays. It's not an elitist sport. You know, it's, it's no mistake that right after the presentation of the trophy at the Open uh, the other day, Literally within an hour, people were having picnics on the 18th fairway and playing and jumping across the burn. And, you know, you watched the Open Championship this, this year played on a municipal golf course, uh, something that only happened in the U.S. In, in just the last few years. So golf is for the masses in the U.K. Uh, and because of that, everybody plays. So my father, way back in the uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, picked up his picked up a club and started to play. And uh, when he left school, he wanted to work on the golf courses. And so he did. Uh, and golf in Scotland is a simple game. The, the terrain is, they pick terrain that's meant to have golf played over it. Golf courses have, you know, maybe six staff, maybe 10, maybe 12. In the U.S., you can have golf courses with 30 staff. Uh, so the, the difference is golf morphed from the UK, from Scotland, out across and into America. It became a really complicated sport. Uh, in the UK, it's, especially Scotland, it's still a very simple thing that every kid plays. Every kid has an old set of dad's clubs and every kid is hunting golf balls when they're uh, able to because they don't want to buy them. Uh, and playing, you know, got, Scotland, the last time I looked at the statistics, Scotland has more golf courses per head of population than anywhere else on earth. So everybody plays. So that was my, my father's foray into the game. And when in the, uh, in 67, when I was born, my father was a young head greenkeeper uh, at Glasgow golf club, which is the seventh oldest club in the world. And his friends, uh, his peers at that point were the young Turks of golf course, greenkeeping who eventually became the guys at Carnoustie, St. Andrews, Turnbury, uh, Troon, Presswick. You know, the, these were his mentor peer group that I was raised by, that they were all my pseudo uncles. And I spent my childhood playing all of those courses. And what did they all have in common? They were beautiful and simple and not complex. They were they were an anathema of Augusta National. There were no fake lakes with blue dye, no cascading waterfalls, you know, nothing. They, they were as simple as you could get across beautiful terrain. Romantic, but not overdone to the point where it's just like, you know, barfing 
stuff everywhere. Like a yeah, lot of nothing stuff. contrived. I mean, just finding a beautiful piece of land and then letting a golf course kind of spill over it in a way that's interesting to explore. And you think about the old course that we've been watching the last few days, that's exactly what you have. It's an interesting, beautiful piece of land that you very simply meander around in a, in a way that's interesting to explore. And you're hitting a golf ball, trying to figure out how the wind and the terrain are going to affect that ball after you hit it. Were you a player growing up? Was your dad a pretty good player? What was your dad, early introduction to the game? My dad uh, was and still is a pretty good player, although he's in his late 70s. My dad played low single digits most of his life. So he's a pretty good player. The lowest, uh, you know, I was a five for a long time. Then my knee got jacked up and I was a nine. And I, I got a new knee last year, which has been a revelation. And now my handicap's going back down again. So uh, I've always been a single digit player, but never low. You know, I've been sort of five to nine and floated in between. The problem being in the golf business, as Derek well knows, you don't play near as much golf as people think. Yeah, I mean, I literally had to go to Ireland to get golf in. I mean, that's that's the way this works. And it's funny because you touched on something. We had Frank and John Casey on from Rosa Pena a couple of weeks ago. And we kind of asked that same question because, you know, they're so remote in the northern side of the Republic, you know, and they're kind of two bays over from Port Rush and Port Stewart and one from Valley Liffin. But, you know, they've got 54 holes and they've got 10 people, you know, they're open from essentially April 1 until October 31st. And, and then they just have the old Tom open. But they were talking about kind of that romantic thought process you just touched on about the fact that the ball's going to be on the ground and however the land that you own dictates what you do with it. And then you maximize that thought process. And, you know, it was so wonderful to take 14 of our members over there and watch them kind of see the light go off being that obviously we are a David Kidd golf course where we all belong and to watch suddenly there's, there's no water hazards and there's, there's certain run-ups and there's there's undulations not only in the fairways but sort of on the green and you can't use the 60 and all of these things and I think the funny thing being an architectural buff and somebody who's done this for a long time in, in the professional side of it is that you see the evolution of golf right so like you said we saw it it's its simplest and it's probably purest form at the old course if it's flat obviously it was very gettable um, bunkers could be circumvented if if you play well you weren't worried about a lot kind of came down to be putting contest. And then, you know, you go just up the road, you got a golf course like Carnoustie where it could be completely different, right? It's still very similar in, in terrain, but a completely different thought process of what the ball does and how it reacts only because the time was different and the person was different, right? So let's well, get into a little bit. <laughs> exactly. <was wind. laughs> right. So let's get in a little bit how you translate from that. And obviously you've made an enormous mark in the States, obviously with one of the best in the world at Bannon. And we can go on about all of the things on the other side of Queenwood and we can talk about the castle course and all of these things that you've done. But let's talk a little bit about bringing what you know and what you did and how that translated to kind of in the, for us, for our listeners in the States and Canada, kind of what your thought process is there. Well, I, I think it's super simple. The, the American game, when I first came to the U.S., uh, in the early 90s, I went to the Callaway test facility uh, and it could have been any of them, but it happened to be that one. And they were explaining to me how they were developing their clubs and balls for high trajectory shots that would, you know, arc down at 45 degrees and stop within so many feet. And my, and my father and I uh, were with, each, you know, we were there and we looked at one another and thought, that's the last thing we would want in Scotland. I don't want an apex at 117 feet on my driver. That thing will be gone. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I need to be able to step through it and see this thing, you know, low boring flight uh, so that it lands with forward motion and it keeps on rolling. And I want to do that with virtually every club in my bag uh, because the ground is so hard. I mean, again, going back to St. Andrews this week, you had wonderful dry weather, very little wind. It did become somewhat of a putting contest. But how many balls did you see back up on a green? Even when those guys were hitting sand wedges inside 100 yards, you never saw anything back up. I mean, it had the brakes on as hard as it could do it. And the ball still moved forward. So that is golf at its absolute best is when a player has to consider what will happen after the ball hits the ground. If the only thing that will happen is a, is a pitch mark and a reverse gear, golf becomes somewhat two-dimensional. You know, if the ball 
releases on the ground and bounces and rolls and takes the contours, golf becomes this multi-dimensional thing that's so much more interesting. That's why the Scots want to play firm, hard surfaces. And the only way you can get firm, hard surfaces in a place where it rains all the time is fescue on sand. You're not going to get that with bluegrass on clay So when it rains. So fescue on sand is the only way to get it. Here's the big thing that American golf misses is we keep moving the tees forward. We keep trying to persuade players to move forward because their swing speeds lessen, but they're still hitting these high arcing golf shots or trying to into a green that's elevated with bunkers all around it. The architects haven't realized that the Scottish game where the greens are suppressed down nearer to grade and the bunkers are more strategic and less penal allows all levels of ability to play because grandpa with his 60 mile an hour swing speed can still hit a low seven iron from 90 yards away and he can read the contours and allow that ball to break and carry and maybe he gets close enough for a one putt. He doesn't have to be playing with his grandson who's hitting a sand wedge and knows he can stop it in three feet. It becomes, I think, somewhat unfair when every golf course design, when the approach shot can only be done from a high arcing shot that will stop quickly. You start to exclude all the slow swing speed players because they can't hit the ball that hard to put backspin on it. My dad was a single digit handicapper for a very, very long time and a really good player. And as he aged progressively, he moved away from his regular run-of-the-mill municipal golf courses, wanted to play some of the nicer ones, some of the, I don't know, resort courses as it would be in BC. And the problem was, it was these forced carries. Getting yeah. off the tee box, getting the short grass, or like you said, getting to these greens where you have to hit something high and soft and stop it, really, really frustrated him and almost took him away from the game because he just got pissed off. He's like, this isn't fair anymore. So that's, that's a very accurate statement. And he, here's the, the twist. The, if you look at it, if you don't look deeply enough, the golf business will quickly say, well, David's building these golf courses with open sides to the green, and he's allowing you know these weak players. Weak players, the guy's just older. He swings slower. Doesn't mean he's a weak player. He could still hit his seven iron. You know, He can thread a needle with the damn thing. Does that mean he shouldn't be playing? So they're not weak players. They've just got slower swing speeds. But people will say, well, he's, you know, opening up these things. He's making it easier. The, the really interesting thing is you take out a very good golfer, a, a high swing speed, a low handicap golfer. They don't use those slopes. That guy's never going to be chipping a seven iron from 90 yards away. He's still taking, he's probably a guy, could be a gal. They're still taking dead aim. They're not willing to take the chance of that irregular bounce. They still want to try and throw a dart or at least a ball that's much closer to the target and then have it release a much shorter distance. So I don't think that by my allowing a slower swing speed golfer some opportunity to get the ball on the putting surface or maybe even close to the hole, it doesn't mean that that's the only way the hole can be played. The, the very skilled player with the higher swing speed is still going to try and take dead aim. Well, and it's funny you say that because that's the biggest selling point at the club I, I represent, right? And so I have USC men and women who don't use the left side of nine, who don't use a lot of the things on our golf course. They, they fired everything. I watched Justin and Morikawa and Norman Zhang, you know, play your golf course in three rounds and they didn't break par. All of that, you know, the average score was 73 and they played it differently. But then I have members who can use the left side of certain golf courses and it comes back or they can use the contour that you built and the firmer and faster that our golf course is, the more playable our golf course is. And where I live, because of my proximity to the desert, people still to this day fight that thought process, right? So one of the negative recruiting against Rolling Hills is it's never green enough or it's never, it's never plush enough. And it's like, that's not what golf is. I just watch four 12 handicaps get around Valley Bunyan in three and a half hours with a crosswind. And if they had to go to the side or if they had to take a precautionary shot, they didn't complain about it because that's the way they had to play the golf hole in the golf course. It wasn't 
because it didn't fit their game. And I, I really do echo that sentiment that I think that the American population, if the golf course doesn't fit the way they play golf, they just move to a different golf course. So if, if you don't like North, if you don't like the North at LA, you could probably play Sherwood or Lakeside and have a little bit different thought process and just put yourself in a position to do that. But the one thing I love the most about our golf course is, is that we do play it fast and the, and the faster and firmer it is, the less ball marks I have, the faster the golf course plays, the better the scores are. And it makes sense to your eyes and your ears and your fingers that that's how you design the golf course. And I think there's no better way to say that than Mammoth Dunes, right? Like, I think that is the culmination of exactly what it is you're trying to say on the grandest of scales, because you've got playable, you can do whatever you want if you want to step it back, but you've got all levels of golf can get around there in a pace that is fair and everybody's going to say the same thing. They're going to say, holy shit, that's how I want to play the game because they can relate, as you said, to hitting it forward, not up. Golf can easily be made hard. You know, that it's not difficult to make any golf course hard. You stretch it out as far as you can stretch it and you stick pins on edges. You literally have to do not much else. You don't really have to make fairways narrower. Uh, you, you don't have to do much else. That Once you're at full length with pins on edges, every golf course gets difficult. Uh, the challenge, I believe, for an architect is how do you make a golf course playable by the entire membership, the entire group that are trying to play it and still have fun and all of them, not just the, the plus twos, but the guy who's 18 or 22, you know, how does he play it and still come out of there and think that it was a worthwhile endeavor if he loses half a dozen balls and, you know, can't get the ball on a single green on his approach shot because they're all elevated. That just leads to frustration. The, the clubs go back in the garage and they don't think about playing again for a while. And something like Mammoth Dunes that you brought up, it's a destination golf resort. It's a lot of golfers who are being invited by business friends or, or golfing buddies to come play. They may not be members of a club. They may not be regular golfers. They, they have a modest amount of skill off the tee uh, and they want to stay and play. You know, they, meaning they don't want to lose the ball right off the tee and have to, you know, walk the rest of the hole in shame. So giving them fairways they, they can hit, even if they're miles out of position, uh, enables them to have an enjoyable round. And that's, you know, rolling hills going back to that. There's 80 acres of turf there. The fairways are enormous, but position is everything. If you're out of position immediately off the tee, a good player is going to know that birdie becomes much more challenging, if not impossible. But to the average member, hell, I hit another fairway. Yes. Hallelujah. Short grass. Yeah, that's a win. Short grass. You know, <laughs> I, I hit the same ball twice. You know, these are wins that the golf business forgets. You know, I, I uh, many years ago, probably 15 years ago, I had a, like a come to Jesus moment with my own team and myself. You know, what is golf about? Scoring. What is golf not about? Hunting golf balls. You know, what are the things we hate? Hunting your golf ball. I hate that even more than hunting mine. You know, having some chance of success. But if you put a 200-yard carry in front of me and an elevated green at the end of the hole, my chances of success get super, super slim. Well, and I think one of the things that when we talk about that, I think that that's really a great point to go next is, is I think that you and the two Toms, Mr. Fazio and Mr. Dope, you guys have all evolved with what you've done over time. So if you take cut the rope, as we mentioned earlier, or possibly the castle course, that's a completely different model set for what it is if you're talking Gamble Sands, Rolling Hills, or Mammoth, right? You're two different ways to play the game from the same architect. And I, I applaud, and we talked about this last time you were at the club, is the evolution of who you've become as a designer, I think has really shown through that now, like you said, there's nothing worse than looking for your foursomes balls. There's just nothing. It's, it's, it's just demoralizing when you're doing it every hole. And like I said, I think that the greats and the game that we love so much, I just think if there is an evolution and if you don't check your character and figure out what it is you want to accomplish, and you're constantly asking your team other things, but like as somebody who's played almost every one of your golf courses, let's be honest, if, if you catch death row on a hard day, that thing is brutally difficult compared to Gamble Sands. Like it's just two completely different complexes and it really shows. Well, like you said, that was an evolutionary process. You know, I, I, for me, that was 
arriving in the US in my 20s, building Bandon through nothing more than instinct, a great golf site, a wonderful owner, building what my whole childhood and adolescence had led me to. And then that platform gave me an opportunity to build other courses. And as I honed my skills and learned more about the game, I was heavily influenced by uh, probably by golf media uh, to a large extent, you know, resistance to scoring, defensive par, uh, the ranking systems in golf, talking about difficulty uh, being the, the ultimate decision maker on whether a golf course is good or not. And so I thought to myself, well, if, if resistance to scoring is the measure by which I'll be judged, watch this. I can build courses that have exceptional <laughs> resistance to scoring. And, and then after doing that for, you know, probably a decade, I listened to the players who were playing it and they were saying, you know, uh, I, I think I get it. I think I understand why the really good golfers like it, but I'm obviously not a really good golfer because I lost two sleeves of balls, put a car, a, a score on a card that I don't want to post. And this is not a course that I'm desperate to come back and play. And even though those courses that Derek mentions were award-winning, are award-winning courses, and the, the very good players love them, uh, is that really what I want to do with my life? Is that, are those really the courses? Do I get much more enjoyment hanging at the bar at Bandon, listening to all the people that have never played there before, enthusing about how much fun they had, or going to Rolling Hills and listening to the members who play it seems like every damn day uh, saying how much they love it, knowing that the course they had before, you know, was probably not a whole lot to write home about. And now they've got something that all their buddies want to get a guest invite to. So that gives me way more pleasure, whether these courses are award-winning or not, I know that they will stand the test of time far better. Let's, let's time travel a little bit here. This is your first opportunity to come to the U.S. and you're taking your first eyes on the abandoned property. You're out there with Kaiser. There's nothing going on. You're just cliffside, seaside. What are your first impressions? Talk us through that whole initial introduction to that area. My father was with me. It was July of 1994. Uh, I remember it pretty well. Uh, Mike Kaiser wasn't there. Uh, I, my father and I were wandering around the land on our own with him expected to arrive a few days later. And I neither of us had met him. We were pretty surprised that uh, on the southern coast of Oregon, it seemed very similar to the Scottish-Irish coastline. Rolling sand dunes, a wild ocean beating against the, the rocks at the bottom, uh, gorse everywhere we looked, uh, fescue grasses growing in the open patches between the gorse. I mean, it had the basic ingredients of any lynx course in the British Isles already. It was already there. Uh, we couldn't believe that this guy that we'd never heard of could possibly hire a Scottish greenkeeper and his son with no reputation in the golf design business to build this golf course, but, you know, maybe we'd snuck under the radar and maybe he wasn't as sophisticated as we thought. Uh, and we spent a few days wandering around out there with the land caretaker, Shorty Dow, uh, who's, who passed a few years ago in his nineties, by the way, even then he was in his seventies. And uh, he kept asking for a business card to the point that I figured out he was uh, collecting them. So I said, well, I'll give you a card, as many as you want. Like, show, me the, show me the collection. So there's my father and I thinking that this guy from Chicago is probably a little bit naive. And uh, here's two Scotsmen that might get to build a cool golf course in Oregon that probably nobody will ever play, but we'll have a lot of fun building. And he shows me this stack of business cards, and it's everybody you've ever heard of. They've all been there. This is not an unsophisticated man. So we figure at that point, I certainly figure that uh, we're there for nothing but entertainment. 
for this rich guy from Chicago because he can hire whoever he wants. He can hire Tom Fazio. He can hire Jack Nicholas. Why in the hell would he hire David McClay kid that no one's ever heard of who's 26 years old? I'm only out of college like four or five years at that point. So we get to meet Mike later that week and I go buy some poster boards and some poster pens from the local drugstore. And I, I write out what today a kid would do in PowerPoint. I do on like powder pink and powder blue, 24 by 18 cardboard with, you know, giant poster uh, pens. I don't think even Sharpies were around back then. <laughs> and I, I write the, the God's honest truth about what I really thought that wasn't trying to get the job because I knew I would never get the job. So I thought I'd tell this guy from the bottom of my soul what I truly believed, which was, if you are really going to build a Lynx course in America, and P.S., I've seen a bunch of courses in America that call themselves Lynx, and they aren't even close. But if you're going to do it, here's some of the things you would do. You'd ask people, you'd tell people to walk. There'd be no riding carts. There'd be no cart paths. There, there'd be no clubhouse out on the water. It would be way back inland because the best land should be golf. You'd plant fescue. You wouldn't plant bent grass. Uh, we wouldn't build greens and teas and bunkers. We'd just hollow them out of what's there. We wouldn't take out all the gorse out. We'd leave it there. We would do all, we wouldn't make flat fairways. We'd let the sand dunes just spill wherever they may. Uh, we'd build a golf course that was wide and bunkering that was strategic, not penal. We'd build greens that were close to original grade, not popped up in the air. Uh, we'd build a golf course for the average golfer at 62, 6,300 yards. And I told Mike all this stuff and the folks that he had with him all laughed, sniggered, you know, they, they couldn't believe that they were hearing this stuff. And my father in law a, a day later, left Bandon with our heads held high, knowing that we'd never get the job, but at least we told the truth. We, we told, you know, Mike Kaiser, this guy from Chicago that had never really built much, what two Scotsmen truly believed to be true. And, you know, we thought that that was the end of it, but it wasn't. You know, Mike was intrigued. He wanted to hear more. He wanted to know if the the Scottish greenkeeper and his young Turk son uh, could walk the walk as well as they seemed to be able to talk the talk. And so that led to four years of back and forth and golf trips and conversations and wandering those dunes until we completed an open band in dunes in 99, five years later from the first visit. Your penmanship must have been just out of this world on those poster papers. I mean, obviously, that was the deciding factor in the whole thing, right? What do you think those would be worth today if I could? Uh, <laughs> Man, yeah, you should have kept those. Those could have been framed and put those. in the lodge. Yeah, I do have all the original sketches that I did for all the holes. I still have all of those. Wow. Uh, so I'll pass those along and let, let my son figure out what to do with those in the years to come. Well, and I think that, you know, as somebody who I'm taking a trip in a couple of weeks and I'll go over 80 rounds on, on property now because I, it's my favorite, but I think what you just said is the genesis of why everything changed, right? You went in there and Michael and Mike was smart enough to listen to the fact that it, if you got kicked out of a helicopter on Bandon or on Old Mac and you didn't know where you were, you would never guess it's the coast of Oregon, Right. And I think the fact that we didn't Americanize it and we didn't spoil it and we didn't do things, we, we allowed, as you said, the grass to be the grass and the dirt to be the dirt and let the sand fall where, where it may. And I think that that really changed how we look at things, how we play golf in the States. Because if you think of Oregon, you're thinking, you know, Waverly, Eugene Country Club, you're thinking of a different style. And we all know that Gerhardt's got one of my favorite golf courses, this little golf course that, that's so great up there. But it's one of the few untouched, right? Because I think, and it's, I'm not trying to take a shot at Chambers Bay, but I think it could have very well become a version of Chambers Bay had it the other way, the thought you thought it, the way you thought it was going to go, where it wasn't you or somebody who didn't grow up in that thought process of just removing dirt and letting it fall. I think it could have really become a process point. And I think the fact that, you know, they did great job with the cabins and the grove and all the things they did there and all the amenities make sense. But it's, as you said, it's away from the rest of the world, right? And I think that that really allowed Cabot and other things to take shape 
you know, and, and we talk a lot on this golf course about Congaree, like that would have never happened without the genesis of, of Bandon and the thought process in America that that style of golf not only works, it becomes a destination. When did you know that that was it? Like, when did you know it happened? Uh, that's a really good question. I think what uh, we were pretty much coming to the end of the construction uh, and a writer called Brian Callen from Golf Magazine uh, was doing a tour of courses down the Washington, Oregon coastline, but including like Eugene Country Club and Gearheart and things like that. And uh, I persuaded him, Josh Lesnick actually persuaded Brian to stop. And we had the back nine at Bandon complete and playable. Cups weren't cut, but you could hit golf shots. It was all green. And he came and played and was supposed to stop for a couple hours. And three days later, we couldn't get rid of him. Uh, and, you know, I think at that point, at least for me, it was sort of like, wow, this this guy obviously has played everywhere. He's a very seasoned golf writer, and yet he's so sort of completely blown away by this being so incredibly different. And I knew that it was different, but I didn't know if it was appealing different. You know, caviar is different. I just don't like it. So I didn't know if if Bandon would be caviar or cheeseburger. Uh, you know, it, it turned out that it's probably closer to cheeseburger, you know. People really, really like it, you know, on mass. And we didn't know that. I don't know if Mike even knew that. For all we knew, we were building caviar. And, you know, just a very small number of people would grow to love it. And they would be the ones that would come. And Mike would lose his ass every year, paying to maintain it. And it would be this outlier of American golf. And that very well, for a lot of people, that's what they thought was going to happen. You'd be surprised how many people thought that that was exactly what was going to happen. What's the sense of accomplishment? I mean, you've touched on it earlier, sitting at the end of the bar, listening to people that might not necessarily know who you are. You're just some guy sitting there having a pint. What, what does that sense of accomplishment feel like when you're hearing all these stories and people are just raving about it purely innocently, just this emotion, this fun. We're just having such a good time. Like that's gotta be amazing for you. Uh, humble brag time, humble brag time. Yeah, of course it is. You know, I, I think that the humble part would be, you know, that the site was that nine tenths abandoned is the site and one tenth abandoned is me. Now, could I have screwed it up? Hell yes. You know, there are any number of people that could have screwed it up. Uh, thankfully, the, the, the 10% that I added, you know, I was just smart enough to know I knew and didn't know I didn't know, you know, 10 years later, could I have screwed it up? Yeah, very possibly. Uh, you know, I, there was another period of time where I sort of learned my art. I, I, it's almost like winning a major as a rookie, you know, and then going out on tour the very next week and having to play, grind it out with the best in the world. But you, your first tournament, you just won a major. That's kind of how it felt. So I, I then was suddenly thrust into competition with people that I, I would have been nervous to talk to much less compete against uh, and so there I was trying to figure that out I, I, I to answer your question ish you know back in like 2015 you know maybe even earlier 20 well, you know what it was 20 it's 2010 so more than a decade ago I went back to Bandon and I challenged myself and two of my team to play golf for a week there and deconstruct both Bandon and all the other courses. Why, what did I get so right at 26 that I didn't get quite so right at 36? And I definitely want to get right again at 46. <clears throat> and we picked those courses apart over a week. There was no drinking allowed or very little. You know, why are they so popular? What are the true nuts and bolts of it? Not the esoteric, you know, golf in the kingdom stuff. You know, what are the bones of it? And we deconstructed it. Well, why can a golfer with modest abilities get around? Well, there are very few carries. You know, it allows slow, low trajectory shots to run and enter a greens complex. Uh, the bunkering is highly strategic. It's not penal. If you make a bad shot, you're probably finding the ball. You might even have a good lie. You're just out of position. The, there are all these things that we put on a list, literally wrote down and said, 
these are the reasons that band and, and those courses are so successful. Let's imprint those and take those wherever we go, even if the landscape is not the same. So Rolling Hills, the DNA of Rolling Hills and the DNA of Bandon are extremely close, even though they look very different. The DNA is very similar. That's pretty amazing. And, and is that something now that you preach to your team, this is what we're going to follow moving forward? And as we progress through these different opportunities and different pieces of property, this is this is what translates along the journey? I don't think it's preaching. It's uh, you're either a believer and you're in the inner circle or you're not and you're working for someone else. <laughs> I like well, and, and David, you might, you know, obviously one of the reasons I love to talk to you is because you are extremely knowledgeable and you've done a lot of things. But one of the things I've always said, and I've been blessed to travel with members a lot of places, I think that you've got two golf courses in the world that have unbelievable par threes. And I think the original Bandon and I think Bally Bunyan are just two golf courses that have these unbelievable holes that are not like anything else, you know? And I think that when you play like one of my favorite holes in the world is 12, it's Sligo at Ross's point and it's a par five, but it's just different than the rest of the golf course. I think that there is something to be said. And one of my favorite things that you did at Rolling Hills is, and I know you met resistance on this is you didn't put a par three until the ninth hole. And I think that fits into a lot of what it is you do because the ground and the land didn't lend itself to making the hole that you thought would have added to the property. Talk to me a little bit about like when you're standing on 12 or 15 at Bandon and you're doing what you're doing, like, how do you see that? Like, I, I just, in my world, the ability to hit those shots with irons and they're not long irons unless the wind's coming into 15, which can be one of the, the best par fours in Oregon literally how do you look at those threes and just say this is what's got to keep the golf course moving you know and i thought tom did a great job at 10 and 11 on pacific and i think there's a lot of that movement in in that kind of golf on the ground but those holes are just way different you know we all love five but i just think that your par threes at bandon are just some of the best par threes in the world and i've had this argument at every bar that i've ever had the chance to do it at Tell me a little bit about the thought process when you're kind of creating golf on the ground and then you got to go to an amazing three par. Well, I'm, I'm going to back up just a little bit because it's, I would hope it's interesting to, to the listeners that golf course designers don't actually design tee to green. Uh, every golf designer I've ever spoken to, including myself, we're designing green to tee. So when we're laying out a golf course, you know, we're finding existing great green sites and then we're trying to link it with a tee and a fairway. It's the green sites are the face of the portrait. Uh, and so very often those par three green sites reveal themselves and then you're figuring out, you know, where the tees are. Uh, so, so that's an important point that quite often we're working from green to tee where the golfers work in tee to green. Sure. Uh, and then for the par threes, uh, I guess a dirty little secret with par threes is because they can be very short or pretty long, they end up being connectors between holes. You can often find, you know, a par four or par five, and then another par four or five, and you've got this ground in between where you're like, ah, hell, they're 150 yards apart. You know, I can't tie them together. And so you're looking for a par three that's basically the, 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 the fixer, the, the bond from one hole to the next. The sixth hole at Bandon, you know, the fifth green at Bandon was such an obvious golf hole. And the seventh at Bandon was such an obvious golf hole that, that I either had to make seven number six and find another hole somewhere or put number six in as the par three that's right on the water. Probably much to Tom Doak's chagrin because it took up another, you know, 100, well, almost 200 yards of, of ocean front that he then couldn't use uh, for Pacific. And that's probably why 10 and 11 at Pacific are back-to-back -back par threes because they back up against six and seven at Bandon. Uh, and so that, that whole game played out that way because I was building Bandon as he was laying out Pacific. And I was, I was taking up ground that he might have wanted to use. Uh, so I, I don't know if that answers the par three question, but it all kind of comes together. Let's talk about the, the angry architect let's talk about some of the other courses we've worked on derek was talking about the castle course at st andrews it's got good press it's got bad press maybe that was a bad breakfast in the morning before design talk to us about that that golf course over on the other side of the pond 
Well, my flippant reaction to the courses that were built in, you know, prior to between between sort of 2004 and 2010, the courses that we that I built in that sort of five or six year period, I, uh, you know, get the get the bad rap that they're overly difficult. I, uh, you know, I, the flippant remark is I got divorced in 2010. So I, I, I had a tough, tough marriage that got ugly. And uh, I was having a miserable time and wanted to make sure everybody else was having a miserable time. But that's a flippant answer. You know, the, uh, the, the more detailed answer, if you take the castle course, uh, for those that know it, uh, the links uh, trust down where St. Andrews is on the West Sands, you've got six courses, you know, effectively. And they were doing over 200,000 rounds. The links trust and the clubs decided to add another golf course but there was no land left the the links had been used up so they bought some farmland on the other side of town above the east sands looking down into the the medieval city from the east side of town and that that land was about 220 odd acres of farmland that was not sand it was not dunesy it had nothing on it it didn't have a tree a hedge a creek nothing it was 220 acres of five percent slope down to the water's edge which was a 50 to 80 foot rock escarpment down to the north sea so i won't bore you with the whole story about winning the the commission and that's a whole story in itself but i win the commission to build the the seventh course at st andrews and really only the fourth championship course right you have the old the new the eden the Jubilee. Yeah. You're, you're not wrong. So you really got four championship. I'm the fourth championship course on what became the castle course. And I'm on 220 acres of potato field with nothing. And, you know, my father's been a superintendent for 50 years. And my career is being a golf course designer, having built Bandon. What are my options? Think that through. 220 acres at the home of golf that is other than the cliff edge, boring as boring could get. So I have two options. I either build vanilla and accept no criticism and no joy either. I provoke little reaction from any golfer and build something that's, maybe it's hagen vanilla, but it's still vanilla, right? Or I go to hell with everyone. I'm going to build tutti frutti. And half the audience will love it and half the audience will spit it out because it's the worst thing they ever tasted. And except that golf at St. Andrews has been there 600 years. Hopefully it will be there 600 years plus more. So whatever reaction happens in my lifetime is a, a dot, uh, a passing moment. The history will judge this over millennia. And so if I build millennia, if I build vanilla, I will lay in my grave knowing I built vanilla uh, and no one will care. And in a few short years, they'll hire someone else to blow it up and build something a little more interesting. Or I could build something interesting and then take the rest of my lifetime to tweak and adjust and allow the golfing public to accept what would happen if you built the old course today think of some of those greens they'd be screams and shouts about some of those holes the road hole you hit it way over and out of bounds over a hotel into a fairway that you can't hold you've got two choices hit it over the about out of bounds and risk that or into the rough on the left p.s either way you're not holding that green the scoring average at the open was what 4.7 i mean there, there were a handful of birdies over 72 right you know four rounds so controversy i think is essential if you're going to build something especially something on a weak site you have to be willing to accept the controversy and as a scot i was willing to accept it i still think tom doak zero in his book was you know petulant uh, but i think that over time the the castle course will uh, gain ground and be more loved as things happen over time you know another 50 years 100 years 200 years 
uh, I hope that it would be fully embraced as part of the links. And who knows, maybe maybe an open to be played there in 200 years time. You'll never know. I will never know. Well, and before you came on, we were talking a little bit and prepping and doing some work, but that's the one thing that I remember when Mr. Fazio always told me at the quarry was judge me on my portfolio, not on a golf course, told me on what I do overall with everything. Because as you guys know, the land is just completely different, right? You guys are going to get different sites and different thought processes. And your job is to bring as much out of it as you can. So like one of my favorite places in the world is Nenea. Now, I'm lucky that I get to play it every year. Not everybody has the access to that golf course. But if somebody wants to talk about challenging and fun with a setting, everything you just said was the opposite of the castle course, right? Like you have this unbelievable piece of land. You have this unbelievable view. You have Mr. Schwab. You have all of the things that are going your way. So the same guy that did one is the same guy that did the other, right? So I, I, I believe that a lot of what you're saying is correct because in the world that I live in professionally, and I'm on the opposite side of your dad, is my job is to make sure that the culture of a golf club or that the responses of the professional staff match what it is you wanted to be put out there. And that it's, it's, it's the superintendent's job to carry out your vision. And it's my job to make sure people understand why you did what you did. And I think that like when you go play Gamble Sands and obviously you just did a short course there, like if, if somebody has a bad day at Gamble Sands, I just question if they really like the game. You know, it's the same thing with Nenea. <laughs> like if you go out to these golf courses and you don't truly enjoy your experience, then you're looking at things in the wrong view and you're taking things that aren't really practical into this literal sense of what it is you do architecturally. And I think that the portfolio over time, and we're not even talking about Queenwood and all these other great facilities. And the other thing that I've always said, and I was talking to Chris about this, is that you always, to me, who the architect has on his Rolodex is also just as important as the piece of property that he has. So when you're talking about guys like Charles Schwab and, and obviously Fred and all of these guys that are on your Rolodex, Mike Kaiser, that know who you are and the soul of what you want to do, I think that that really goes underrated in a lot of the thought processes that's going to be judged on your career. There's a lot of really big names in Fortune 500 and, and guys that understand what you just did when you did your presentation to Mike. I think there's a lot of people that don't understand how much of that goes into these guys with a lot of money wanting a very specific target. You know, Irving Azov's doing it in the desert right now with Gil. And it's like, there's a specific thought process. So when you get that call, is there a vetting process? Is it the land? Is it the thought process? Is the overall sell? Like, what are you hearing when these guys call you? I. Uh... You know, very, very rarely are these calls cold calls. They're usually, you know, I know a guy and they know the same guy and there's an introduction and there might be a game of golf played. You know, there's there's a sort of soft intro, you know, they're they're talking to different people and and you're trying to figure out, you know, and the way I always talk about it is, you know, the good fit, bad fit thing. You know, the some projects. Uh, you know, I'm a good fit for and some projects I'm not. And that could be because of the land or it could be because of the ownership. You know, we're, we're our, uh, it doesn't mean they're a bad person or I'm a jackass. It just means that our personalities don't jive, you know, like a caddy and his player. So I see it like that. You know, the projects that I've been able to do with, with uh, some of the folks you were mentioning, you know, I, I got to know them personally. We, we built up a bond and a trust. Uh, I was able to be frank, forthright, and honest with them. Uh, you know, one of the jokes that uh, the owner at Gamble Sands always says to me is, you know, it's rarely a conversation between us that we aren't five minutes into where I say to him, I don't know. Because I'm quite happy to tell him, you know, he'll say like, oh, where do you think the first tee is? And I'll say, dude, I don't know. I mean, it's probably over there somewhere, but I still don't know. Well, how much is this going to cost? I don't really know yet. You know, it's, it's probably twice what we spent last time, but it's probably not 10 times, but I still don't know. So, you know, having that ability to have a friendship where you can be really bluntly honest and uh, self-deprecating uh, enables me to be able to say to him, hey, dude, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to do that. I know that you really want that, but I don't want to do it. Or I think it's a bad idea and we can have, debates and arguments where it isn't a case of him saying I hired you to do this and you will do what I want you know there's a, a mutual trust and I'm absolutely 100% sure that that same uh, bond trust exists between all of the top architects and their clients and I think that you make a very good point uh, Derek that 
maybe some of the up and comers who are wondering about how to compete with with me and my peers that's one of the untold unsaid things is getting to a point where you're comfortable to be working for people with you know real money and real power and still being able to say to them i don't know that's an interesting perspective. I like that. That's uh, have you had many opportunities or many instances where it's really been a lot of conflict or a lot of friction and you've had to walk away from projects or just blatantly say, no, I'm not doing this. I'm out. I have never walked away from a project. I mean, I've had projects that that were difficult, you know, that I maybe underestimated the the dynamic of the owner. Uh, or ownership, uh, or the challenges of the site. Uh, but we've never, I mean, one of the most difficult complex constructions we've ever done is Derek's Club at Rolling Hills. I mean, that was, that thing was a hairball on hairballs. Uh, very, very complex. However, the the club leadership and management, uh, Greg Sullivan, who, who works hand in hand with Derek, I mean, just quality, quality people. The membership were exceptional. Uh, even though the project was super complicated, we ran over budget, we ran over time. They were exceptionally understanding. They knew that it wasn't our lack of ability or lack of desire. It was circumstances that no one could foresee. And we worked together as a team. We collaborated and we figured out how to get the absolute, absolute best uh, lemonade out of the lemons we were being served at times on that project uh, and the result shows you know they had a, a a club that fully subscribed membership rates that no one could ever have estimated going into it uh, and yet other projects and I won't mention names that are far simpler to build you have ownership that are in conflict looking for uh, reasons to throw people under the bus are constantly not fully trusting you know those projects get old really fast you know and you're like oh we're having to grind this round out you know this this ball just doesn't want to go in the hole <laughs> and you try and tell them like hey dude i'm not i'm not trying to fight here i'm trying to get to the very best project i i, I don't need to do this for the check you know i'm doing this because in my world i feel like i can com i'm competing against the very best in my business you know, Tom Doak, Bill Coor, Gil Hans, they do not build shitty projects. I can't build a shitty project and get taken seriously at the level I think I'm at. So I'm going to grind to do whatever it takes to build the best project, whether you're going to make it easy or not. And thankfully, nine times out of 10, the clients see that passion. They understand that my team are all about the end result. And so they are willing to help us I mean, the, I, I remember working for Fred Green, who owns Nantucket Golf Club, Queenwood, a bunch of others, just a quality guy who Derek knows. I remember one of the early construction meetings doing Queenwood Golf Club in London. He said, get your guys, bring them in uh, to the kitchen. I want to make everyone a coffee. So we're sitting there at the end of the day. He's making coffees for everyone. And he turns around to everyone and says, what can I do to help you guys get where you're going? What can I do to help you? And it was just this total change in dynamic that everyone in the room is looking to him as the top of this pyramid, being the boss, the owner, the guy writing the check. And he suddenly inverted it with that one comment. What can I do to help you? You guys are the ones doing it. What can I do? And it was, I can't remember what it was, a couple of stupid things. A few of the guys want to live on trailers on the site. They're sick of commuting. Can you give your permission for them to move a trailer on site? He's like, done. What else do you need? And just one thing after another, like it would be really good if we had portable toilets at the very far end of the site, done. What else do you need? You know, and just that dynamic, suddenly he got a golf course that might have been a nine and he turned it into a 10 right there because everyone's like, I am willing to die for this guy. Now that is Mike Kaiser. That is Batman all over. He is whatever you need, I will provide you. But I expect exceptional uh, results. 
Well, and I think that, you know, as obviously I've made my living in very high end private golf clubs, and I think you said it right. And the term that, you know, was always thrown out, whether it's in jest or not, is the benevolent dictator, right? Like your great clubs in the world have an answer and they're never bigger than the moment. And one of the hardest things to do, especially in today's world, because golf clubs have become so board centric and everybody has time now and everybody can zoom in and you know, when I was at these top 100 clubs in America, nobody wanted to be on a committee because A, if they were there, they wanted to use their golf club and not talk about it. And B, they didn't have time because they're running these multi-million dollar companies. And the last thing they wanted to talk about was the food and beverage in a, in, in a, in a house meeting, right? Like they didn't do that. They hired people to do that for them. And then they just kind of worked and, and did it over time. And, and when you involve that many captains of commerce in a discussion, you know, it dilutes it quickly. So I just think that most of the great projects are always going to be, and I'll never forget, obviously, if you worked today with Mr. Schwab, like he doesn't like the word Mr., right? It's first name basis. And he has every right in the world to be called Mr. Schwab, but he just doesn't want that. Or, or Bill Moore with the quarry or Fred Green at Eagle Springs. And you get these guys that have that thought process. And I think you encapsulated that perfectly that Mike Kaiser is that guy, right? Like it's about the product and it's about the legacy that he's going to leave. It's never about his ego or his pride at least on the surface, you know, everybody's going to have a little bit of that to build what you've built. But in my world, what I really want to do to kind of wrap this up is I want to kind of put you just a little bit on the spot and you don't have to answer a lot of these, but I have three things that I want to know your favorite golf course of all time, your favorite David kid design. And if somebody had to design a golf course for you, who would you pick? Favorite golf course of all time. I think that it's all too often people pick the golf course and not the experience they had on it. You know, I, I spent my childhood playing Macrahanish Golf Club out on the west coast of Scotland, an old Tom Morris course from the late 1800s. You know, I played that course with my cousins, my grandfather, my father, you know, my uncles. You know, I, I spent so much time playing on the beach, hanging at the club, putting on the putting green, caddying for my grandfather you know i have a lifetime of memories on that beach uh, and that golf course is quirky and wild and unpredictable and most of all utterly utterly natural uh, and so that would be my easy pick for my favorite golf club it's totally remote uh, there's nothing there don't go there for anything other than the golf you're not going for the weather or the the well the stakes are actually pretty good these days uh, <laughs> Favorite golf course that I've done? That's yes. a super chat. Again, it's all about, you know, the things that that happened. You know, it's n I wouldn't end up picking the course that people that have played all my courses might think. You know, I, I did a course in London called Beaverbrook uh, about five or six years ago. I made friends for life there. That uh, I met my wife who was playing on the European tour while I was building it. I, I had a fantastic time working on it. It's a few miles from Queenwood, a few miles from Sunningdale, right next to Walton Heath. So I got to play all those courses while I was building it. So if, you, if you're going to make me pick in terms of overall experience of doing it, I'd probably pick that one sure. and not abandon. I, well, I mean, it does make sense because everything's a process, right? So if you yeah. have good memories in something, obviously, as you said, you met your wife and you've done a lot of these things and you're in this great. So that's kind of where I was looking for the in-depth thought process, because obviously it would be an easy answer to say banding, right? Like that's not what I'm looking for. Like yeah. the thing that I'm lucky, I get to see behind the scenes with you and Nick and in a lot of these things. And that's kind of what I want people to understand is you're not conventional in that way. And I think that that's how I want to close it is that you have to understand that from a process, yours is different than everybody else's, but it's also what makes you unique. And an answer like that is a wonderful look for people that are listening behind the curtain. It's just, it's not about final ranking. It's about what you did from stem to stern and what happened through the process, correct? Absolutely. I'm trying to remember your third question because someone's going to remember that. Who's going to build the golf course? If, so if, if you suddenly, if Mike Kaiser gave you his checkbook and it's not you, do you have anybody that you revere that might not be known to the public or somebody that you really like the style of what it is they do? God, that's, I mean, I have a lot of peers in the business. You know, I, I would, I, I, you know, the creativity of Pete Dye, the consistency of Tom Fazio, the minimalism of Tom Doak, uh, the process of Bill Coor, the, the amazing architecture of Gil Hans. I mean, they, these guys are, I live in a time and work with peers 
that are probably unrivaled since the golden age of architecture between the wars. Is there, there, a 20, there has to be no better time? Is there a 26 year old kid that deserves a chance though? Is there yeah. a younger you that should get that opportunity? I, I hope so. I hope he's working for me. <laughs> <laughs> well said. You know, and the reason I say that is like living in LA, like a perfect example is what Kyle Phillips did to Hillcrest. I just, you're never going to get enough love for what was much like an old golf course that Rolling Hills was. And I thought he did a fantastic job. And I think as the game is evolving, I think you hit on this perfectly, is that architecturally, we are in the golden era because there are so many different things that are happening that are going to leave the game better than we found it. You know, and we're talking live golf and we're talking all these things and suddenly that's the buzz phrase and it's the golf professional in me and, you know, hey, grow the game, B, 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 right? But to me, I think architecturally, that's the thing that I love the most is that these golf courses, you know, a perfect example to use Rosa Penn again, I go up there now, you know, they've got St. Patrick's and they've got Sandy Hills and they, I mean, you're talking literally much like you were talking with Macarohanish, it's nothing really there in the town, but it is the town center. You go to Port Stewart and everything's run through that clubhouse and it's the city center, right? And I yeah. think you have all of those, those ideas. And one of the things that I really wanted the, the listeners to get tonight was just the depth of how far you go on a project it just isn't the result of the golf course. It's really about the people and the climate and the experience and you take it all in. And then when you leave, your goal is hopefully they like what you did. And I think only time will tell. I, I think like many uh, art forms, whether it's music or theater or movies, whatever, the audience in some way, shape or form pick up on the vibe that existed during the creative process. So if, if a golf course was created and it was, you know, everybody was enjoying it and feeling fulfilled and, and having a big time, you know, enjoying what they were creating, that shows, it comes out in the work. So I'm, I'm often picking the team for a project, not based purely on their talent, but based on how they're going to work well together, how they're going to get on. Are these guys going to all ride the same pickup truck? Are they going to get along? Or are they all going to want to drive their own pickup trucks? And I could... I'll never say, but there are, you know, not so much with our team, but with others where, you know, every shaper, they all hate one another and they all drive to the site in the same pickup truck. Is that really going to show in the golf course or is that going to create this disparate non-mixing thing, you know, that everyone's not really getting along? So I want our guys all to be riding the same pickup truck. Well, and I remember it, and you said it perfectly. I remember when I was interviewing for the job, and it was essentially mine if I wanted it. I'm riding with Greg, and I'm on the 11th green. Casey and Nick are down on the 12th. The tree on the right side of 11 is there. The sun's setting. There's three carts, and I'm with Greg, and I see all of it. And it's like everybody knows my love for golf on the ground, and it's like this is it. I'm here. I mean, I picked the vibe up within five minutes of taking the right up by the ninth, going down the 10th hole, and by the time we got to the 11th green, I had to be part of what was being created because there's nothing in LA that's even close to it. And I've said it since I've gotten to Rolling Hills, if we can do this in LA, I think it can be done anywhere in the world. And I think it's happening quickly. And, and I'm absolutely not only blessed and grateful to be a part of it, I'm hoping that culturally we just keep moving it forward to what that vibe was. And I, I think that's a perfect way to end the segment because I think that's exactly what you were going for. Hallelujah. Is it caviar? Is it cheeseburgers? Yet to be determined, but David, can't thank you enough for your time tonight. It's been beyond enjoyable to get some insights and a peek behind the curtain with you, and, and you're very gracious with your time. So thank you so much for jumping on with us. My absolute pleasure, gents. Well, David, you know what we think about you at the club, and God bless you for being part of it. Please give our best to Nick and everybody up there, but hopefully we see you soon, and if you need a ride from Zamperini, just let us know. I will do. All right, thank you. Okay, David, thanks. Take care.